This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. So the next talk is by um, uh, Writing Plague, Myth, Mortality, and Modernity by Mark Honigsbaum. You're here, that's of course. Well, I mean, what a fascinating session so far. I've been making um, copious notes and all sorts of connections. I just want to begin by saying thank you very much to Daniel and Polly especially for inviting me here. Uh, I think I was last in San Diego when I was 18 on a bus back from Tijuana. Um, (laughs) Cities change a lot since then. Um, Okay, so the topic, the subject of my talk today is writing plague, myth, morality, and modernity. Um, I'm a historian, so I don't have any um, archaeological uh, slides or um, uh, you know biological data. But the information, the story I'm going to be telling, is based on plague texts, um, and I want to relate it to the present day. So I'll begin by saying, I'm sure you'll agree that trust is a precious commodity and nowhere more so than in a pandemic. Without trust in science, it's difficult to persuade people that viruses are real and present threats, rather than, as some people seem to believe, a conspiracy by Big Pharma. And without trust in government, it's difficult to persuade people to accept lockdowns and other restrictions on their liberty. How else to explain why countries with high political and social trust enjoyed lower coronavirus infection rates than those that scored low on such measures, even when adjusted for factors such as uh, population density, uh, GDP, and previous exposure to coronaviruses? Indeed, studies indicate that if all societies had trust levels as high as Denmark and other Nordic countries, the world would have seen 13% fewer coronavirus infections. Prior to settled human settlements, um, survival depended on the clan and its ability to resist or outrun predators, whether they be pathogens, animals, or other people. But in modern societies, we have no choice but to trust in individuals who are are unknown to us and who we may never meet. This is especially the case at times of war or pandemic emergency, when we need to have confidence in government and faith that citizens will act collectively for the common good. Indeed, the historiography of trust suggests that this attitude or emotion is a particular feature of modernity. As Uta Frever to the Max Planck's Institute for Human Development puts it, we moderns love to trust. It makes our lives easier and nicer, right? Trust is also necessary to face the unknown, whether that unknown is another human being or a pandemic. As the German sociologist Nicholas Luhmann has remarked, without trust, most of us would struggle to get up in the morning. This preoccupation with trust and respect for democratic institutions 
can be traced to Athens and the plague that erupted there in 430 BCE. The outbreak is famously described by Thucydides in his uh, uh, second book, uh, in book two of his History of the Peloponnesian War. So I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with this book, but written over 2,000 years ago, it's the first historical description of an epidemic of disease erupting in a confined civilized environment. And it's an account that still speaks, resonates with readers in the present. Much of its power, I believe, derives from the fact that Thucydides places a high value on eyewitness testimony. We trust his account, or at least we're prepared to give it credence because Thucydides writes about events which he tells us he himself observed and in which he was an active participant. So um, what was the plague of Athens? Well, it was highly contagious and often fatal, and it appears to have been sparked by the influx of refugees who were fleeing the Spartan forces in the Attic countryside. Camped behind the long walls running from Athens to its port at Piraeus, the refugees swelled Athens' population from 100,000 to 400,000, rendering the city crowded and unsanitary. Although the pathogen has never been identified, candidates include smallpox, measles, influenza and anthrax, the typical symptoms were vomiting, convulsions, blisters, diarrhoea, and a raging thirst. The Athenians appear to have had little or no immunity to the successive waves of disease. And by 426 BCE, it's estimated that between 100,000 to 150,000 Athenians were dead. Thucydides writes, the bodies of dying men lay one upon another, and half-dead creatures reeled about the streets and gathered round all the fountains in their longing for water. But perhaps the most remarkable aspect of this narrative is how the plague serves as an agent of social and moral pathology, destabilizing Athenian society and disrupting religious customs and norms of civilized conduct. Uh, and I'm continuing quoting from Thucydides here. Men, not knowing what was to become of them, became utterly careless of everything, whether sacred or profane. All the burial rites before a noose were entirely upset, and many had recourse to the most shameless sepulchres. It's no accident that Thucydides' account follows Pericles' famous funeral oration, that is so often quoted as summing up the greatness of per Periclean Athens and its democratic institutions. And this is another quote. In our public life and in our private business, we are not suspicious of one another, insists Pericles. A spirit of reverence pervades our public acts. We are prevented from doing wrong by respect for the authorities and for the laws, as well as those unwritten laws which bring upon the transgressor of them, the reprobation of the general sentiment. In so doing, Thucydides presents two radically different images of Athens. In one, a city, sorry, in one, a city ordered by and deriving much of its strength uh, from accepted civic customs and procedures, and in the other, a place of increasing self-gratification and anomie. The result is an erosion of trust and the willingness of Athenians to endure sufferings for the common good. 
In our world and in our own time, the coronavirus has asked similar questions about what we stand for and how we should comport ourselves. And it's exposed similar ideological, moral and political fault lines. So when COVID first swept the globe, I assumed that advanced democracies would put the health and welfare of their populations first. And it was a measure of how far we had come as civilized peoples that we would be willing to suspend our freedoms and economic activity for the common good. The country which exemplified this approach was New Zealand. Announcing some of the strictest lockdown measures in the world, New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ahern said, and I quote, we will get through this together, but only if we stick together. By locking down early and maintaining social distancing, Ahern ensured that fewer New Zealanders died of COVID and other respiratory diseases than in typical non-pandemic years. Sweden, um, you can see here, took a different but similarly successful approach. Rather than closing schools and dictating when and where Swedes could mingle, the government trusted Swedish people to behave responsibly by voluntarily quarantining when sick, working from home and keeping apart whenever possible. The result was that though Sweden's excess mortality was worse than its Scandinavian neighbours, it was significantly lower than the rest of Europe's. By contrast, in the UK, the government worried that behavioural fatigue would set in if it locked down too soon. Instead, it took a herd immunity approach by allowing the virus to spread, only to abruptly reverse course when modelling predicted the country's health service would be overwhelmed. Meanwhile, in the United States, political polarisation meant that for every person who embraced the need for lockdowns and face masks, there was another who railed against the necessity of such measures and rejected, or perhaps distrusted, the scientific premises on which the advice was based. The result was that the US suffered um, 3,740 excess deaths per million of population, which was far more than any similarly wealthy country. Indeed, at times, Americans resemble nothing so much as the townspeople of Oran, the northern Algerian town, which is the setting for Camus' 1947 novel La Peste, and where Camus observes half the population spent their time denouncing the health authorities and looking for ways to circumvent the quarantine measures. In this respect, Camus writes, our townsfolk were like everybody else, wrapped up in themselves. They were humanists. They disbelieved in pestilences. But as Camus warns us in the next sentence, it's a mistake to regard plague as a bad dream that will pass away. It's not pestilences, but men who pass away, and the humanists first of all, because they have taken no precautions. It's only when the gates of Iran are bolted, cutting the townspeople off from the outside world, that they are slowly forced to confront the reality of the plague and their exile. Beset by feelings of fear, isolation and loss of agency, they beg to be reunited with loved ones. When the authorities refuse, some inhabitants become violent and are shot. Eventually, however, they're forced to accept the absurdity of their situation and the pointlessness of seeing themselves as atomized individuals. The, the catastrophe, in other words, has become collective. A feeling normally as individuals, as the ache of separation, Camus writes, uh, from those loved ones, suddenly became a feeling in which all shared alike. 
This ache, along with fear, became the greatest affliction of the long period of exile that lay ahead. In Camus' novel, there's no possibility of a vaccine, only a serum. But the main character, Dr. Rio, doubts it will be available, doubts it will be of any use, as he suspects the plague bacillus is already mutating. In the case of COVID-19, however, vaccines were the surest means of ending the need for ongoing restrictions. And it seems, it seems particularly appropriate saying that here in the Salk Institute. Indeed, studies have shown that countries which locked down early and maintained strict social distancing until vaccines became available emerged from the pandemic with healthier populations and healthier economies too. Even Trump, no fan of lockdowns, recognized the importance of vaccines providing, by providing federal funding for Operation Warp Speed. But, there is, but though, as you all know, his initiatives ensured life-saving vaccines were available in record time, many Americans sadly hesitated to take them. Uh, and as this graph shows, this was particularly the case in Republican states where go governors questioned their efficacy. Indeed, it was in the months after the vaccines were made available to the general public that U.S. death counts started to shoot above those of their European countries, driven by high rates of vaccine hesitancy in states like Alabama, Louisiana, and Georgia. The result, according to analysis by Bloomberg, was the U.S. suffered three times as many excess deaths as the U.K., more than four times as many as Sweden, and 28 times as many as New Zealand. In her book on immunity and inoculation, uh, Eula Bliss observes that few medical procedures are as misunderstood or as charged with anxiety as vaccination. This is partly because vaccination lends itself to vivid metaphors, from the scarring of flesh to the contamination of blood to the violation of what we imagine to be pristine bodily spaces. But beginning in the Victorian era and continuing into the modern period, resistance to vaccines has also been closely tied to the expanding influence of the state and distrust of medical authority. This is a particular problem, I should say, among African-American populations who are far less likely than white Americans to trust vaccines because of their negative experiences of healthcare and medicine's failure to acknowledge the racial legacies of colonialism. The result is that many people no longer think of public health as something that operates in and through their bodies. But if COVID has taught us anything, it's that we are not atomized individuals. Vaccination works by enlisting a majority in protection of a minority. To be sure, it's far from a perfect science. Vaccines are sometimes associated with adverse events. But risk is part and parcel of modernity. In free societies, we are obligated to balance these risks and, in the face of, and in the face of uncertainty, trust in scientific expertise. And after all, what is the alternative? In Station Eleven, uh, one of my favourite writers, Emily St. John Mandel, um, her book, by the way, won national bestseller. I urge you to read it. It's on many English-set texts now in schools. She imagines an event in her book, Station Eleven, called The Collapse, triggered by a deadly flu epidemic uh, that kills 99% of the world's population. Written before COVID, but inspired by the 2002 SARS epidemic, 
Station Eleven is a haunting portrait of a world without planes or pharmaceuticals and where a dog bite or a bee sting can prove fatal. Told through the perspective of a troupe of Shakespearean actors known as the Travelling Symphony, the novel shows us a world in which death and tragedy has stripped life to its essentials. Hold up in an airport while all the planes have been grounded and one of the few diversions is visiting a museum containing artefacts from the time before the collapse, Kirsten, the youngest member of the troupe, is haunted by reminders of the pre-pandemic world. Observing the meaning that Shakespeare brings to the lives of those toiling to make sense of the life post-collapse, she joins the troupe and embraces the symphony's motto that, quotes, survival is insufficient. In this way, Kirsten's story emphasizes that to move beyond mere survival, it's crucial to live a life dedicated to connecting with and helping others. But perhaps the character who best exemplifies this deep human need for connection is Jeevan, a paparazzo turned paramedic who becomes the town doctor in the post-pandemic world. Now, prior to the collapse, Jeevan's occupation has left him feeling empty and disconnected. But as the street lamps fall dark, he realises that the systems he has taken for granted depend on a vast network of people, all trusting one another. And I quote, We bemoan the impersonality of the modern world, Mandel writes. But that was a lie. It seemed to him it had never been impersonal at all. There had always been a massive, delicate infrastructure of people, all of them working, unnoticed, all around us. Collectively, Jeevan and Kirsten's stories and the journeys of the other characters emphasise that meaning is created through service, art, love, and yes, trust. And that civilization has always been, as one character puts it, a little bit fragile. That's a conclusion. That, that's a conclusion with which I think Thucydides and Camus would have agreed. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.